This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. All right, guys, welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting, and fishing radio here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Coming up in just a few moments, we're going to be talking to fellow fanatic Craig Chapman on everything to do with fallow hunting from herd management to gear to deer habitat, how to hunt deer, the best places to try and look to hunt fallow deer, and also the history of fallow deer too. So that's coming up in just a few moments. Uh, It's finally happened. I'm really excited. That's uh, that's not really that exciting, but I finally got the show on Stitcher. I know, so guys, sorry. Uh, A lot of people have been trying to talk to me about getting the podcast on Stitcher. Now, I used to have the podcast on the Stitcher app, But unfortunately, when I migrated from my one service to the other, uh, it was a bit difficult to be able to migrate that from my old free service to the new paid service. And uh, I tell you what, the new paid service of Podbean uh, is heaps better than my previous uh, service, that's for sure. So if it's an easy way for you to listen to the show, please go on Stitcher. Really easy way to listen to the show. Of course, most people listen to the show uh, on the website. They listen to it on iTunes or they listen to it on the Podbean app. But people have been bugging me about it. So my wish is, uh, my command is your wish or whatever the, your command is my wish or whatever the terminology is. Uh, And we are now on Stitcher. It's all new. It's updating. It's absolutely fantastic. So you can go listen to it on Stitcher as well. But if you want to check out the website, it's australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. We're going to be doing a straight shooting in the next, I think, two weeks. So please leave your voicemails on the website. If you go to australianhuntingpodcast.com.au, on the right-hand side slider bar, you'll see the leave a voicemail. If you've got topics that we want to talk about, you want to get your voice on the air, ask us questions, or... uh, something we should be talking about please do we'd love to hear from you so please send them in as soon as possible i think it goes for 90 seconds and uh if you're short of that just record a new one and send in both that's totally fine it's easy to do you can use your smartphone tablet uh computer desktop laptop whatever you've got you'll be able to use it to leave me a voicemail so long as you've got a microphone to do so also, it would be great too if you do listen on the iTunes app. You know, it'd be great if you could go on there to the Australian Hunting Podcast in the store. Uh, leave us a comment and rate five stars. That would be greatly appreciated. So not much has been happening at the moment, uh, but over the next two weeks, I think, I made a couple of videos for YouTube. Now, I'm thinking about changing my name on YouTube. Uh, it's under my current name, obviously, Jason Selms. Uh, I went to Malacuda over the... Uh, Christmas period and obviously you guys know I got caught in the fire so I made a bit of a video about that uh, also went down to the Riverina in November made a bit of a video about that now I don't really like editing but a lot of those videos took about seven or eight hours per video uh, and I think the one down from the Riverina the long range shooting took me about 12 hours to edit that goddamn video but in a previous life not many people know but I did do a lot of wedding videography in a recent life of mine so have done a bit of editing in the past. A lot of people liked it. And one of my friends uh, down from southern New South Wales, about four hours south of Sydney, sent me a message. He saw the video, really enjoyed it. 
he didn't realize I got any rabbits. So he offered me to come down to a property he's got access to. Uh, and we are going to do some long range rabbit shooting. He said the amount of rabbits is just crazy. Uh, he says you can shoot long range, probably up to about four or 500 meters on rabbits, which is just awesome. So Mark, if you're listening, probably by the time this show actually comes out, we probably would have already done it. And hopefully we had a great time doing so. So I want to thank you uh, very much for that, for inviting me. Hopefully we get to do it more than once. Wink, wink, hint, hint. Uh, (laughs) That'd be absolutely fantastic. Uh, If you want to write into the show for any reason too, guys, send me an email at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com if you want to write anything into the show, anything for straight shooting. Uh, And if you want to be part of straight shooting and you're available at the time we record, uh, we definitely are going to take phone calls. So either email me, send me a message on Facebook, Instagram, any one of those avenues, and we'll be happy to, if we're recording the show, uh, to give you a call during the show and uh, talk to you live on air. So that's what you want and you've got some interesting topics to talk about uh, to add some extra content to AHP, uh, that'd be greatly appreciated. And also too, if you uh, are on pay- one of my Patreon supporters that's uh, financially supporting me with a few bucks a month, I really, really appreciate it. You guys are legends. Anyone listening that likes the show, as you guys know, I don't really ram it down your throat or anything like that. But if you'd like to support the show, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash AHP uh, and join the show. Join the Patreon supporters. You'll get all podcasts in advance of everyone else. So I think it's time to get onto my guest to talk about fallow hunting. Craig Chapman, the fallow fanatic, mate. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. We're going to have a great uh, discussion today about fallow hunting. So welcome to HP. Thank you. Thanks, mate. i uh, really been looking forward to catching up with you and having a good chat about um, my favourite species, the fallow deer. Yeah, I was thinking about that myself a bit earlier when I know it was, and guys, if you don't listen, we've been paying a bit of phone tag and I've been a bit lazy, I suppose, to do it before Christmas. So it's great to finally have Craig on the show. But I was thinking to myself, what was my favourite species? And I thought to myself, well, I've only shot one Samba and it was only a small one. And most of them, well, all of them other than that, yeah, have been fallow. I've shot no reds. I've shot... Um, uh, no rooster actually too and of course those little small dog deer the little hog deer haven't shot any of those either so um, yeah I think fallow deer might be my favorite I really think they're the favorite but uh, tell us about yourself uh, well look um, I'm uh, I'm in my 50s um, and I've been hunting since I was about um, eight ten years old something like that when um, dad uh, gave me a, a p rifle he called it which was a a single shot Lithgo 22, and I think um, a lot of your listeners probably started out on, or of my vintage, might have started out on something similar to that. Um, so you, it was a bolt action. You'd put the, you know, you put your cartridge in in the in the chamber, then you close the bolt, and then you'd you'd pull a little, uh, um, uh, what would you call it, the the pin back into into a locking position, so it was ready to fire, and then yeah, and I remember. Um, I remember getting my first rabbit at about age ten, just on the on the farm there at um, family farm at Jerry's Plains, and I was just as proud as punch to getting my first rabbit. And it was, it, I was from that moment on, I was kind of um, I was just totally uh, sold on on uh, on hunting. And I think you know, I think looking back, I think it's probably in my DNA, as it is in a lot of hunters. I think. You know, you you just got this. You can't actually explain it to anybody that is a non-hunter, if you know what I mean. It's just something that's either in you or it's not. But I think I think probably probably it's in all humans, or um, to, to to varying degrees. It's just that we've become so bloody urbanised, Jason, that um, people just don't actually realise it. 
Yeah, I know. What about um, brothers or sisters? They get into hunting. Was it just you that got the bug or dad, uh, um, mum or any no, other friends and family? No. It was literally just me. Um, and I, I don't know why I was the, the one. I've got one younger brother and that was it. Um, but I, <laughs> I was just that engrossed in in um, um, in hunting just from, from a very early age. And I used to look forward to going up to the, the family farm in the Hunter Valley for, for, for holidays so I could, you know, get out that pea rifle and go hunting. Nine times out of ten, I wouldn't get anything because, you know, I was just just a kid sort of stomping around the bush making a lot of noise and making a lot of mistakes. And, um, you know, the bunnies had seen me coming from a mile off. And uh, um, so, but, you know, that's when I started to to – to get interested in stuff like foxes as well, and you know, I remember making my own fox whistle out of a out of a um, a jam tin lid and folding it in half and putting two little holes in it. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those yeah, things. The invention that, of the tenor field very early on, many many years before yeah. the tenor field was even a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's it. No, it's funny because I remember um, oh, a few years ago. Now we're we're up at a at a um, at a at a big property, and my mate forgot to bring the the fox whistle. I said. Leave it with me, mate. And uh, we found an old tin on the tip and cut it up and punched two holes in it. And voila, we had a fox whistle. <laughs> so, yeah. Sounds like a good old time, especially in the in the Hunter Valley. There's some very good deer numbers up. There's a lot of fallow up there. I've never sort of – I've hunted up there once, I think, but not, not – Mate, yeah. there is. There is, but more further up towards the – like the upper Hunter, like up – up around the willow tree area, so where where our farm was was around Jerry's Plains near Singleton. Um, there apparently is a, there's a few few the odd red getting a bit around sort of up on the the sort of the northern side of Singleton, but um, uh, where we were, no, it wasn't wasn't um, wasn't a bit dear to be seen. Unfortunately, it was so my kind of um, interest in in um, in deer kind of stemmed from reading the old sporting shooter magazines and 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 looking at these stories on on um you know samba hunting and and fallow deer and I just I I couldn't wait for each month for you know the next issue to come out and I'd I'd read them back to front read these stories well before uh, well before social media and uh, Instagram and and you know where we get all our all our information sort of instantaneously um, I kind of live sort of vicariously through reading these sport, sporting shooters, I guess, and that they were our version of sort of Instagram in terms of getting knowledge about about um, hunting, or at least they were were mine. I I still got a big pile of them at home. Yeah, and yeah, I, so. I I tend to watch YouTube for some reason, watching people uh, you know hunt deer or whatever it might be. It sort of gives me that fix you know, that I need before you know, I can go on my trip. Like I've got one coming up in April on the long weekend. What about you? When's your next trip to uh, hunt some deer? Um, well, mate, I'm going down in a couple of weeks' time to the property I usually hunt on just to scope things out and um, see what, what, um, what, what the fellow are up to. I was down there a couple of weeks ago and the, the does were starting to sort of mill around and, the, and there was some bachelor mobs of, of smaller bucks starting to move in. Um, and you could see that the, the, the bucks were, were starting to get a little bit toey and a bit, bit aggressive um, leading up towards the rut, which, um, which will kick off around about, uh, you know, sort of the beginning of April is generally when, when it kicks off. But um, when, it, when I, I believe that it, 
in my area, it's sort of more or less the around about the seventh or eighth of April is is the peak peak of the rut when it really kind of kicks off in a big way. It just sort of I don't know, it just kind of erupts in in uh, you know the valleys erupting with the noise of um, bucks croaking and fighting and yeah, it's just a, a, a mega exciting time and that's that's what I really love about the fallow because they're, they're so vocal and um, and and they, they're they're aggressive bloody buggers. They they can actually kill each other if you know if if push comes to sharp. I don't think it happens too often, but um, I think it probably more happens more um, you know in deer farms and stuff where they're actually enclosed. But they can certainly they can certainly kill each other. Because um, it's it's you know they're fighting for those those does and they're pretty uh, yeah they're pretty um, arced up with testosterone um, and that's all they care about at that time. In fact, they stop pretty much stop eating during the rut and they, they lose up to twenty percent of their body weight, um, which is a fair bit. Well, all that for a uh, female deer. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that back that years for- ago when we were going out. We were full of testosterone and. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, that's 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 exactly what it's about, and and the, the studies show that 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 it's all it all comes down to the length of pretty much the length of the, the daylight hours affect the um, a, a hormone in the in in the in the brain of of the does, which would um, causes them to ovulate, and the the bucks can actually smell that, and that um, that combined with um, with with their, with also with the de- decrease in in daylight hours, apparently causes a um, an increase in their testosterone. And you can actually see if you if you if you're watching bucks over the seasons, you you'll see that their necks are starting to really um, expand massively from from having a, a thin little neck, and then you see them um, as it gets closer to the rut, their necks get really thick. Um, and, and, um, yeah, that's all, that's all testosterone. Um, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought it up right now, but is that from, uh, you know, fighting and struggling with other animals, obviously other male bucks? Is it just the test, pure testosterone? How do they get that thick neck? Is it, um, well, it is, it's, it's, it's like, I guess, uh, probably an analogy would be, uh, you know, a, a, a gym junkie, um, taking roids. It's it's the same thing. It's 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 actually a hormone. Testosterone's a hormone, and that increases their their neck size, um, and and bulks them up. I suppose you, you could you could say uh, they get really bulked up, and and just prior to the rut, they're they're feeding and feeding and feeding because they're going to need to put on as much weight as they possibly can to for the right to fight um, the the biggest and nastiest bucks for the right to breed. So, um, you know, from around about, even from around about, um, say, October, this is, um, we're talking the Southern Hemisphere here because obviously in the Northern Hemisphere, the seasons are reversed. Um, but around about October, they, they, when they lose their, their antlers, straight away, a, a new antler will start to grow. And, and my apologies to, you know, deer hunters that are listening that already know all this stuff, but there's probably a lot of guys that might not know that how how sort of how the seasons work with the with the fallow, um, but so around about October the antlers actually literally fall off, and but straight away the, a new a new antler starts starts to grow, and 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 they they try to get as much much protein as much good feed into their belly as they can, 
um, right from October, right through the Christmas period, January, um, and, and around about sort of um, February, um, their antlers are pretty much um, pretty much filled out um, to, to to the size they're going to be, and they're they're still in what they call velvet. But in in February, they're starting to harden up. The, the antlers are starting to harden, and um, around about late February, early March. Uh, it does vary a little bit from region to region and for, even from animal to animal, but I'm just giving generalisations here, um, so don't hold me to it if you shoot something that's in hard, hard antler in, on the 1st of February, although I, I, I would doubt it. <laughs> I would doubt it, but <laughs> it, it would have happened, no doubt. But anyway, just as a general rule, right, um, they're, they're, they're still in what they call soft velvet from, from October through, through that Christmas period, through January, and in, around about in February, the antlers are starting to harden up. So you, if you saw one in January with just, just in velvet, you probably, you, you're probably best not shooting it because they're still going to be in what they call soft velvet, which means it, it's, it, it, it's kind of like a jelly-like substance, their, their antlers, that hasn't actually, hasn't actually um, solidified into, into bone because their antlers are actually bone. They're not like a goat, which has has got sort of horns. Um, in terms of the makeup of horns, are like I think it's similar stuff to what your fingernails are made out of. Whereas antlers, and again, my apologies to experienced deer hunters that know all of this stuff, um, but but antlers are actually uh, a bone, um, and it's it's quite a remarkable thing to think they can grow this bone so quickly. From from October through to through to February, and it grows such an enormous amount of bone in such a short amount of time. It's just a an incredible thing. I know it's just when I first, oh, to be honest, probably when I first started getting back into shooting, and when I found out they dropped them every year, and it was just I was blown away. Like just yeah. how on earth can they, especially those big, especially the ones I see from like uh, New Zealand, and those yeah. massive uh, you know antlers on those deer. I was like, how on earth do they grow that in such a such a short time? So let's say you were, you know you're on a private property for an example. I mean in yeah. New South Wales it has changed on public land now. You can hunt them sort of mm-hmm. all year round. Um, yeah. let, let's say you shoot one in I don't know middle of December, uh, late, yep. late December, so you wouldn't be able to take anything up. Would that just crumble in your hand? I've never shot one during that period, so I couldn't tell you. It would be good to tell the listeners. Well, it, it, um, it'll rot, basically, because it's, it's just full of blood and, and, um, and developing, it's developing its antlers. But, but in saying that, there'll be people out there going, hang on, I've seen antlers have been preserved. Yes, Antlers that are that are in in um, in velvet can be preserved by a taxidermist. However, being um, being full of blood, they need to be treated um, almost immediately. So, if you're out there mid December and you shot something in that stinking hot weather, um, you know the the first thing you would need to do is um, is get that head into a into a freezer straight away, and 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 and, and freeze it. And then, um, and then get it to the taxidermist. And typically, I've heard them. And I've not, I've not done it myself, and I wouldn't recommend actually people do it themselves because it typically involves using um, formaldehyde, and that's a pretty nasty kind of substance from all accounts, and give you cancer and stuff. So you're better off leaving that to to a taxidermist. Another another method they use is um, 
freeze drying. Some taxidermists have freeze dryers and they can treat it in that way. But, you know, I just think it's a lot of mucking around and if you can at all resist the temptation, just just wait, and you know, just wait another month or two to, for a, to get into hard antler and, um, and, and, and try and shoot one then rather than be disappointed and shoot, shoot one that's you're still in soft velvet and then it ends up rotting and, you know, you, you've wasted a really good head. I guess sometimes that might be hard for the, the new and up-and-coming budding deer hunter out there that might be, you know, maybe he's got nowhere where to go, maybe he's only got public land and he <laughs> sees that big, gigantic buck in front of him, he thinks he might never get it again and, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe wants some meat or wants to try some meat. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting scenario. I guess it depends on well, people's scenario. Well, it does. Look, and I'm not going to criticise anyone for doing that. All I would say is that if – if you have got that out of your system, you've shot a buck. Um, from from then on, maybe just maybe just say to yourself, if you do see one, you, you ask yourself the question: I've already got one at home that's, that's bigger than that one. And if the answer is yes, then go. Well, do I really do I really want to shoot that one, or should maybe maybe can I um, see if there's a doe um, in the area and 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 nail it rather than shoot something that's um, going to be. Uh, hopefully able to um, breed and and pass on on its you know genetics if it's a good one to to other other you know for, for future generations and that's I'm not being in any way um, sort of uh, accusatory or condescending to anybody that shoots a fallow that's in soft velvet it's just that's just what I would do just think about shooting a doe instead um, or unless it's a you know unless it's a rubbish head like. You'll, you'll know, like if it's got one antler's a bit wonky and it's um, genetically you think, you know, you don't really want that one breeding because it's, um, you know, you don't want it spreading on its, uh, it's spreading its um, genetics to, to the herd. Yeah, definitely knock it out. I saw one on public land last year, a couple of uh, two bucks were together. Now, this is probably maybe July and I'm yeah. not sure if they were hanging out together and one had, yeah, not bad antlers, wasn't a trophy animal by any stretch, but still a good eater. And the other one, oh, the poor bugger, he just looked mangled. Like I was looking at it, it was sort of a, it definitely wasn't a spiker. You could just tell it had terrible genetics. And I'm looking at this thing going, oh, mate, you're probably the first one to get shot. But unfortunately, that one didn't present a shot for me where the other one did. So it looks like I took the other one. Yeah, no, that, and look, that's fine. That's that's totally fine. Um, but um. But if you can, I would have liked to can, have shot the mangled one too. Maybe you know, really filled the freezer, but unfortunately, that wasn't the <laughs> that wasn't to be. Well, well, they both eat the same, so you know, um, yeah, <laughs> they do. What about something a lot of people have been talking to me about as well? Is you know, like our location, especially us, and, and probably a lot of people are from Sydney. You know, Melbourne, our sort of central places around Australia, our cities. You know, I live in Western Sydney. You're just sort of you know, west of me, and we were going to meet up to actually do the show but i'm going away this weekend so unfortunately we couldn't make it happen but is this our location conducive to hunting fallow i mean a lot of people live in different areas i tend to go south let's start with sydney first is there any locations maybe people might be able to go hunt like say even state forests or even if they start knocking on doors privately where do they need to go to start hunting deer because once my job is finished craig i'm uh, moving out of sydney and i'm going to go somewhere and get a job where i can hunt more you know hunt on a more regular basis than i do now living in bloody sydney well look um the, the it's a good question because the the fallow deer numbers have really since i started hunting them back in the the 80s where there was certain 
um, you know, localised populations around the state and indeed Australia, there's a lot more options now. There's a lot more. They've spread. They've, they've spread their wings. The fallow deer, which is is great for us, might not be so good for um, the farmers. But um, look, the fallow deer hunting in Australia and New South Wales, I think, is probably the best it's ever been since I've been been hunting right now. Um, you know, um, but in terms of your question, you know, where to go and all that sort of stuff, mate. I was on the train just the other day, and um, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Between um, the Blue Mountains and Parramatta, I saw a, a white fallow deer just in some, just in a small patch of scrub, just out the train window. Um, <laughs> I saw so... one about um, where was it? This one's hilarious. I mean, you might have even seen it if you're on uh, social media and Facebook. I think it was you'd know the area, probably around Dean Park, Richmond Road, coming between Doonside and uh, Dean Park and one bolted across the road. I mean, I used to live in Marion as a young kid growing up next to Blacktown and um, haven't yeah. moved too far from the area, obviously. And uh, one came out just before Dean Park. It's before the Knox Road lights there. He bolted across the road and uh, someone had a, <laughs> had a dash cam and yeah, hit him pretty hard at about 60 kilometres an hour and then someone followed up and said, no, he got up and, and ran away. He, he tried to go for the bolt at the last section coming out of the out of the scrub and, you know, obviously crossing between that, sort of heading towards the M4-way coming from that bicycle park area. Yeah, and right. He wasn't a bad-sized boy. If I can see if I can find it again, I'll, I'll send it to you. But, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's just crazy, isn't it? It is It is crazy. It's remarkable where they can beak out a, out an existence. But um, We just can't you know, hunt them you, there, though. That's the problem. You just can't <laughs> hunt them. But, but I guess that in a way that kind of tells you how resilient they are and – and it tells you a bit. It tells you a bit of a bit of an insight into the into the species that in that they they can thrive in this kind of um, in this urban sort of fringe. And they so they're, they're for for listeners that don't know that what fallow love is this kind of any area where that that's got got some decent feed is number one, but that the sort of borders um, some thicker kind of country that they can feel safe in. So they're, they're kind of fringe dwellers, the, the fallow. They, they, they'll, they'll, they'll spend their, you know, early morning um, just sort of, you know, 40, 50 metres out, out into the open. But as soon as that first light comes up, they're back into the, into the, um, into the forest. So... Um, how does that compare? Because I find that interesting because even on some of my experience, I mean, I've done, you know, it always sometimes it fails me big time but you know i might walk down say into an area and you know, i'll spend you know two hours walking down in there a couple of steps glassing glassing yeah nothing uh, and all of a sudden oh it's about you know i'm not you know the one of the guys that goes out you know from 6 a.m until 6 p.m at night or 7 p.m at night until dark and takes all their food with me i'll go back have a chat to the boys for lunch for a couple of hours maybe a lie down who knows uh grab something to eat for lunch then i'll head out for the last three or four hours in the afternoon and it always seems to be every time i look up walking back to you know the the camp to have lunch with the guys or whatever i see the arse end of like say four deer running off on me it happens all the time but on some of my last ones when they were crossing say between you know public and 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 private and finding those game trails and seeing what their whereabouts were normally what i was seeing it just depends on i know it depends on the deer depends on the situation depends on the terrain but normally around that 8 to 8 30 is when i've had 
pretty much most of my success, even as late as about 10 o'clock, uh, them coming out of the thick stuff, wanting to head onto the good stuff to get the, the, you know, the green stuff in their belly, so to speak. So it's interesting, isn't it? How is that a difference in area? Is it there's no real link between what they do and how often between, uh, well, you know? They're not going to do the same thing every time, but what what they do do is 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 can be sort of fairly, you know, reasonably predictable. It's just as you know as to exactly where they're going to do and, and what. But but like um, I guess other species of deer in those re- um, really cold, um, freezing cold winter, kind of midwinter, um, you know, July August kind of time periods. Um, you know, you, you look for those areas that are going to get those first rays of, of sun because they're no different to, to any other animal. They want to bloody warm up, right? And when when it's really cold like that, they're actually burning a lot of energy just by being cold. So then what they want to do is that the first thing, those first rays of sun come out, they, they want to warm themselves up, number one, and number two, they want feed and they want good quality feed. So if depending on where you're hunting, if it's private land or even um, you know, state forest, look for those areas that have got the best quality feed and just rather than if you can avoid the temptation to sort of, you know, stomp around the place and, and scent the place up, if if you can just find a nice little area, might might be, say, in the pines, for example, you, you know, do your research first, get out your, you know, your Google Earth and have a look at, look for those areas that are going to get those first rays of of sunlight it might be a northern face of a hill, and um, you know something that that's got a boundary, like got uh, good pine stra- immediately adjacent to it, or or forest immediately adjacent to it. But again, I stress, you know, good feed. Um, if you can kind of um, add those those clues up and sort of you know tick those boxes, you know, is it is it kind of north facing? Is it going to get that first rays of sunlight? Has it got good feed? Does it is it got good cover adjacent to it? Then and and if you can find a good vantage point to just sit there, then that's that's what would be my sort of advice um, uh, to hunting because that's that's generally what I do um, rather than sort of stomp around the place and setting setting the place up because they're very deer, uh, you know deer in general are very um, kind of uh, sensitive to scent. They just don't like it. Even if you've been there the day before that, they don't generally like it. Uh, us humans um, uh, stomping around in their in their backyard. If that makes sense. Yep, mate. We're just going to go to a quick break just for a second, and we'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability, and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. Mate, I want to also ask about good feed too. What constitutes good feed when uh, fallow hunting? Oh, that's that's a good question, and I'm by no means an expert on pasture, uh, <laughs> but if you can look at a you know look at um, a, a patch of um, uh, forest, uh, look for some where there's some nice green grass. Um, 
they might have some legumes there, might have some bit of clover or or any of those, you know, some some wild oats or or anything. Just something that's nice and and green. And you'd th- just think to yourself, if I was a if I was an animal, what I'd like to munch on that. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If the, yeah, <laughs> it's not very technical, but um, <laughs> if it, it looks it, good it and it's green and it's that nice little grassy yeah. type stuff, that looks pretty tasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sometimes uh, it might be say if you're on private land, it might be those those the sides of those hills where sort of um, sheep might camp for a while, and you'll notice it's it's a lot, um, you know, right up on the crest of, of some some of these cleared hills that are that are adjacent to forest. It's a lot um, greener there because because um, of the I think it's the urea that and the and the and the the sheep shit. Um, sort of fertilizes that spot, but but after rain, mate, you know that it just comes alive. It just those 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 sort of um, crests of hills. I've noticed that that they're the first areas to get that that first pick of of the green shoots. And but not only not only for deer is that a good spot to to look at, but that's also for pigs, mate. Pigs love that. They'll come out onto those that, those areas as well and feed. And so so too will the roos. You, often you'll you'll you know where the best food is. Just w- look for where all the bloody roos are. Hundred percent. Yeah. I normally when I go in some state forests and that, like I try and you know hunt the fringes and stuff like that. And yeah. every time I'll see the roos start to come down, I thought, oh, the roos are coming down. It's going to be game on. Hopefully, very soon. Sometimes you have luck. Sometimes you don't have any luck. But before we talk yeah. more about fallow, we've gotten yeah. into it. We've just gone totally AWOL, which is good because I love that. But I want to talk about a few basics before we get back into the fellow hunting. So just how long have you been hunting for? How many years? Uh, well, I'm 53, so I've probably around about the 40-year mark. <laughs> wow, a long time. I feel, I, well, I feel pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty more years left in you, mate. What about uh, other than, you know, uh, what do you like to hunt other than, other than deer? You said you like foxes before. Anything else you go out for or are you purely just oh, a mate. deer hunter? Um, no, mate, I'm a big fan of pigs, eh? I'm just a massive fan of pig hunting, and um, and so is my 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 hunting buddy uh, Paul Elder, and he's uh, called Grizzly Hunting. If anybody uh, wants to follow him on um, Instagram, have a look at his site. He's he's shot some enormous pigs, um, but uh, yeah, mate, just the just the aspect of shoot. I know some people say, oh, pig hunting, it's it's easy. Well, you know what? Finding that big old boar, they don't get big and old for for being stupid. I, I actually I rate them. I rate them as a as a, a really really good game species, not just for the fun of it, but just even trying to nail a big gnarly old brute of a boar is is just yeah, I love it. It's interesting, but you know, when like I've never actually. Surprisingly, I don't mind saying it. I've never shot a pig yet. Um, every time mates have gone to state forests or they've gone to, you know, private land, maybe they're hunting over the other side, and all of a sudden they'll come back. Oh man! And one of them shot two pigs one time, and then on the next trip, another one uh, was in a state forest. He shot a pig as well, and I'm like, man, how come you guys are seeing pigs? Like, and where you're sitting or where you've set up, you know, to try and ambush, just seems to be working for you. Whereas I've never. I've, even in the forest, I've been out probably, 
you know, seven, eight times a year, maybe nine times a year, and I never, ever see pigs anywhere. <laughs> I don't know if the doggers have got the, the leg up on them, which obviously they do because they've, yeah, they've got the dogs. They can sort of flush them out and find them. But I've never seen them yet. When they come back, I say, where were you? Like, uh, I need to hunt there, you know? Well, the, the pigs pigs are a bloody smart animal, I think. I think a lot of people underrate them, eh, because their eyesight's not great. They just assume that they're, maybe they're not smart. But the pig, mate, the pigs are smart. They're very, very intelligent animals. And if, if the area you're hunting gets, gets a lot of um, hit hard by, say, doggers, then, mate, they become nocturnal. The pigs are still there, but that they're smart enough to realise that, you know, um, they, they, they don't want to be um, a target during the day. So what they'll do, they just to- turn totally nocturnal, which makes it makes it a lot more uh, challenging because um, you might only catch them out that 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 sort of first few minutes of of sunlight, or indeed you know the last uh, ten minutes before sunset. And of course, that means you've got to be in the right spot. And in some of those areas that have got high pressure, that that can be a difficult thing. So yeah. Mate, I'm hearing you, and I, I, I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just, I get so jealous. But um, one of the initial, initial questions: What about other than hunting deer and pigs? Um, any, you know, do you go out clay targets, pistol shooting, or uh, target rifles, anything like that? Um, I, I look. I, I bought a, a Beretta, really nice silver pigeon, twelve gauge, a few years ago, with the idea that I'd, I'd shoot clays, um, and I even. Did a, a course with um, yeah Michael Diamond, or did, did his course, which I can highly highly yep. recommend, mate. He it's just unbelievable. That, but that's a whole new another story I could ramble on for ages about. But I was I was totally shit house. I won't I won't mind admitting that. Like I could hardly hit the side of a barn door with a clay. But after a two day course with him, I, I was just I was just nailing it. I was just nailing clays. It was unbelievable the difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but um, I sort of digress here. <laughs> After all that, I, I ha- I've hardly done it. I, I feel really guilty now that you asked me. I've hardly done it. And, <laughs> That's uh, not the point of the show to feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like I've got it in the I've got it in the gun safe there, and I take it out and I look at it, and I think, oh shit. You know, I should have gone. Why haven't I gone clay target shoot? So that's that's one goal I should set myself this year, is to get back down to the clay target place and and shoot some clays because um, yeah, it's it's great fun, eh? It's it's, it's turned the shotguns turned into a safe queen. I know, and, and a bloody good shotgun at that. I, that's the, the timber on it's bloody beautiful. I don't mind saying. I don't mind boasting about that. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about, um, and very interestingly, you know how how fallow and just deer hunting in general, I guess, but fallow hunting as yeah. well. What else has changed? You know, in the last say you know twenty or thirty years since the nineties, especially you know surrounding fallow deer. Oh well, um, there, there's been there's been massive changes, eh? Like um, in not just in the gear, which is was really that's really added to your chances of success since I started back in the eighties, but also you know the techniques. But I just just in terms of gear, I mean, back when I started in the in the eighties, there's no such thing. At least I don't think there was. I, I stand corrected that. There was no such thing as like ballistic turrets on scopes. Um, the military probably had them, and they probably, you know, there's probably some militarized ex-army versions you could get, but they'll probably be 
great big chunky things, you know, not like the, the beautiful things we've got these days. And there was no such thing as sort of laser range finders or laser um, lasers within Binox. Um, but for me, um, so that's made a, a huge difference to my kind of success as a, as a hunter to be able to, um, you know, um, with, with my technique, that I generally do with my with my hunting buddy Paul Elder is we will we will first scope out and I guess I'm digressing here into techniques a bit, but we will um, scope out where where we think the bucks are by putting in a lot of um, groundwork before the rut, right? So that means you know getting out getting out your maps, or it might be Google Earth, and 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 having a real good look at look at the areas that again getting back to you know the, the terrain and 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 the groundwork that you've already put in finding the the scrapes you know these scrapes are the, the things that, that that as the word suggests where the a buck will dig up some dirt and um, he'll piss in it and he'll he'll um, you know rub trees around it and that's that's part of his turf if only um, we knew find- that's what we had to do Ada to to attract women was piss on ourselves we'd be <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how I that think- helps them like how's that well, well I'm going to piss on myself and somehow women are going to be attracted to that women, female deer amazing well mate I've been to some strange parties in my time and uh, this probably <laughs> happened <laughs> uh. but, I, but I don't think it attracted any females um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, I digress. Uh, but so, so we were talking about sort of, um, you know, the gear and the and and um, and the techniques that have changed. So I was just sort of saying what what um, my hunting buddy and I, and then that's another thing too, is to get a get a good hunting buddy. Um, just one, get someone that you 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 you're sort of on the same wavelength, and but somebody that can add value to to your hunting because I'm always learning, right? Everybody's always learning. I learn something new about fail every single time I go out. I'm not, I don't put myself up as an expert. It's just something that I'm passionate about. And but but in Paul, he he's taught me a lot of different things that that I kind of have added to my kind of little toolkit of of hunting techniques. And but the biggest one that Paul has has instilled in me is 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 bloody patience. I'm on the most impatient bugger when it comes to hunting, um, but but he's he's kind of he's got this sort of calming effect, and he, he he's sort of instilled me instilled in me the art of just being able to sit there and wait, and wait and wait till those you know till those last dimming hours of sunlight in the rut where you think most likely a buck's going to emerge from, and um, but I'll tell you a bit later um, about about. What, what sort of you know a story about that because that that's kind of um, that that's that's a technique that can really pay big dividends. Um, but in terms of techniques, right? So um, y- you might be you might be in terrain where the shot is is kind of a you know a reasonable sort of shot. And for me, a reasonable shot is is anywhere from sort of 150 meters to sort of 300 meters. That for me is is my comfort zone. And I know. There's a lot of guys out there that shoot long range out to, including probably yourself, Jason, shoot out to a, to a kilometre, no problems at all. Trying, um, trying, but <laughs> not on game just yet, but probably 500 metres I'd be comfortable yeah. with right now in my gear to be able to do it. And, you know, yep. like most guys, that'll probably come in the future. But, yep, continue. So so when when I started hunting, there was, there was really no kind of – there was no ballistic turrets like on scopes you can – 
where you can say range find a deer with your laser, you know, and dial in the range and boom, off you go. There was none of that and you, you couldn't look up on an app and, and punch in, you know, the um, stuff like the, the crosswind and all of that sort of technology, which has really, really increased our chances as a hunter of, of getting those, those really good trophies. So things like that have changed. Um, camo, camo is always changing, but you know what? I think there's a lot of hype around that, Jason. I don't know what you or your listeners think. I think there's Absolutely. a lot of hype. Absolutely. And, mate, I was hunting – I started out hunting in flannels and, and jeans and a pair of Dunlop volleys, and I still managed <laughs> yep. to get fucking plenty of things, you know. <laughs> and, you know, I go to, I go to different um, sort of club meetings and stuff. I'm not mentioning any names, but you get guys there that go, oh, you're going to need to, you know, get this sort of camo and you're going to need to – um, yeah, oh, you can't wear blue. I was like, what? I used to wear blue. You know, I used to wear fucking jeans and stuff. I, I actually don't think anybody really knows what a deer can see. Like, unless, unless you've got a brain that's got a, you know, deer eyes, which none of us have, then none of us really, really know. I think we've got a fair idea about, you know, their eyesight. I think, I think just from my own observations, um, they're they're very kind of sensitive to bright light, so they don't like that that when that that first early morning sun comes out it's, and it's blazing, right? They they do like to eventually make their way back into the forest because I think it does affect their eyesight, and they don't like it. Yeah. Um, but I digress, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna harp too much on cam- camo because. I don't know, you might have some sponsors that give you camos. <laughs> no, it's not there's anything. I'd normally buy just the, you know, the, the cheapest but, sort of camo just because it's better than getting my normal clothing sort of, you know, dirty and wet and pair of jeans. But I remember one time uh, yeah. I was hunting and one, I didn't have enough chance. I got there, set up camp. It was about 3 o'clock. I think I set up for about an hour. I thought I'll, I'll go out for about an hour and a half, go sit in one of my spots. And, and as you just alluded to as well, I think I've had that much non-success of walking around. Uh, if yeah. you find a good place that's got yeah. good amounts of fallow, uh, yeah. sitting and waiting has been the most uh, exciting slash most educational thing yeah. I've ever yep. done. If you can battle your own mind for about three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon and sitting in the one spot i remember one time i was just mentioning i went out had my black pair of jeans still had my had my work shoes on but they're only like a yeah. runner sort of black style you know so office yeah. runner i thought oh, yeah. well, i'll quickly get the car i went to this fringe area that i know with a lot of game trails coming out into some private country and i thought it opens up a little bit inside the forest i'll go there anyway sat there mate i was i had a pair of like a black hoodie as a black jeans um, my glasses on even because I was aiming into the sun and my, a deer popped out about 15 metres from me. Luckily, two of them, and the first one was looking straight at me. And I'm just sitting on my little, uh, which I got, yeah. which I strapped to my uh, backpack, which is my little fishing chair. Yeah, you know, those ones that you sort of just pull to the side and they open up. It's my little chair. Yep. And I, that, that thing is awesome. And it was looking right at me. And I'm just staring at it with my glass, big black glasses, big white face. <laughs> and it looked at me for about 30 seconds, and I'm like, oh, and they're both looking at me at this stage, and I'm just like, oh, my God, my heart's racing. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I thought, yeah. oh, I'm just going to hope, and I wait until they you know, continue on, but I'm thinking I'm sprung for sure because I didn't see them until they saw me, and I was moving, and it's staring at me, staring at me, and I'm just – 
you know, trying not to make, you know, even do anything to move. My gun's on my lap across my, my, my two legs. And then after about 30 seconds, they just turned their heads. They just kept walking forward. And then eventually I waited until they got, you know, about 20 metres the way they were going, quartering shot, bang, took the first one out, great bit of meat. And Bob's your uncle, so it just goes to show nice, you don't nice. necessarily need camo, I don't think. I mean, I've called foxes well, into, you know, like I was on a bike path in Western Sydney here one time. I thought I'd just run around with a fox whistle on the bike path when I was doing a bit of riding back then. And I called a, a fox out of a bit of um, a blackberry uh, on, a, on a side of a private property. <laughs> and I, oh. had my, I had my helmet on and I had um, a pair of shorts on and I had one of those sort of Adidas, you know, wickaway shirts on. Mate, it got to about yeah, yeah. A, a metre... Uh, in front of me before it realised and then took a bolt, you know, and I was like, this is yeah, crazy, yeah. this is crazy, you know. Mate, if you – if I, I guess we've digressed onto the subject of camo, but I'll be very quick with you. If you look back at the, some of the photos of the Samba hunters back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, mate, they're all wearing those those blue fat or red flannel shirts or swandries, and, mate, there's plenty of, plenty of Samba being shot there. The key to it is – is just to be able to break up your shape that doesn't look like a human because they've genetically evolved, I think, to be frightened of a, of, of a human shape. So this, the example you gave, you were sitting down. So you, that would have been confusing to them because you wouldn't have looked like a human shape when you're sitting down. But the moment if you stood up, bang, they would have, they would have you know, I think I always try and sit in front of like a tree or a pine yeah. or whatever yeah. it may be just to try and break that up. But, I mean, normally That's I wear it. a pair of – I think I get mine from Big W sometimes, a pair of those camo pants, throw a couple of camo shirts on. But, I mean, mine are cheap. I'm not going to spend too much money on that sort of stuff because I'd rather spend my no. money sort of elsewhere. But, you know, it's, it's it, I don't think it has the effect that some people say it does. You know, I think yeah. um, even with foxes, exactly the same. Yeah, it's not it's not not about the brand or anything. It's just about breaking up that shape and trying to, like, even if you can get a a face net to just cover up your face. Because I don't know about your listeners, but I've got a really sort of whitish face, and you know, it's like a it's like a freaking beacon, right? So if like I try and like if I'm walking around um, getting to my next spot, I won't wear it because it's too annoying. On I don't I don't like the feel of it on my face. But when I'm getting to into an area I know that there's, you know, a prime likelihood, then I will I'll put it on and I'll have my cap on as well, just to, you know, and, and preferably a pair of gloves as well, just to try to again cover up those again, I've got white hands. <laughs> I know. So, it's, it's at that fine. point you think you're being sprung. I mean, you know, I've, I've had another time very similar to that where uh, I saw three of them probably 30, 35 metres away and yep. they were coming out from behind like a, a little lull in the ground. Like I could, I saw the first one come out and I thought there yeah. was only one there and it was staring. This one caught me because sometimes, you know, after about two hours of sitting there, you start to get a bit fidgety. I start looking at my phone, even though I've got no coverage. I start looking at old photos or whatever yeah. I was looking at last on the internet. And then I looked up and it was staring at me as well. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I've, d- I've, I've failed again. Anyway, yeah, yeah. it looked at me for about 30 seconds. It, it was probably at my, let's say it's at my 12 o'clock position. It was probably at my 11 o'clock position. So just to my left. Then it kept quartering. And then I'm thinking, all right. Like it's just come behind this shrub. It's going to come out the other side. Just get ready to shoot. And then guess, and then I had my gun up ready to go. And then guess out of the corner of my eye, 
I see another one. This was the ones that I was telling you about with the bad antler. And then I'm looking through my, I'm looking at the, almost like looking at the first deer with my left eye and the right deer with my right eye. It was that interesting. And all of a sudden it's staring at me as well. And all I could see, because it just come out of the, the sort of little uh, concave lull area and it was staring at me too. The other one hadn't stopped moving and it was looking at me and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not going to be twice lucky. There's just no way. Anyway, 30 <laughs> seconds, it turned its head, started following the other one. And I'm like, all right, so I put the gun down. I go, all right, get the shoulders ready. Uh, they're going to come out behind this tree and this shrub and I'm going to shoot them. Anyway, I'm looking at those two and guess what happens? A third little... I don't know if it was a little buck or a little, a little juvenile male or a, a doe, I couldn't tell you, very small. It's staring at me as well in the same position. I'm like, you have got to be shitting me. You know, this is not possible. <laughs> this is not – how many more? Is there 10 behind the other – this third one? Anyway, <laughs> it was staring at me. Yep, a good 25 to 30 seconds, and then all of a sudden – it didn't spring me either, and then they fought, and then and all of a sudden they must have stopped there. And then when they all got together, they continued on. And then you know I shot the first one, which was the the bigger buck, only because that was the one I saw first. I didn't want to get you know winded or scented or anything like that, so I took the opportunity to get some meat. And yeah, it's just like wow, man! Like you've got to be onto them before they're onto you. I've learned from experience: find a good place, sit and wait. Sometimes it can be successful, other times not so successful, but. Out of all the that's success exactly I've right. had, that's been the best for me. But but you know what? And I can't stress enough the importance of the pre-scouting um, and just kind of getting a, knowing the country, you know, inside out that you're going to be hunting. Now I know that could be hard if you say hunting a, a state forest it's your first time or whatever, and you know that that can be tough. But but if if you do get an opportunity, you know, study study Google Earth. Look at look at all the potential spots where you where you where you think um, it's a it's a percentage game, Jason. You know you, you're trying to get the highest percentage area um, um, to maximise that chance of of getting one. Um, and and if you can put put in sort of you know weekends where you, where you just you know not necessarily even going out to fire a shot, you're just going out to look um, and finding where those scrapes are. Um, because the scrapes, um, they're, they're like a bush telegraph to, to a fallow deer. But, um, the, the does will come up, they'll scrape, and from that I think they're able to tell who's in the area, what sex they are, and, and, and possibly other things as well. But, but the scrapes, just from, just from looking at my trail cams, I've got heaps of trail cams out, and I, that's another piece of technology that's come out you know, in the last sort of 20 years that I, I, I can't, can't recommend highly enough. So right. you, you learn so much about it, you, you get to um, pick up all the stuff about the scrapes because they get used all year round, some of them. Yeah, we're just going to get another quick break, guys. We'll be right back. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% of the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit O. USAAustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. Mate, what about preference for 
colour of fellow? Is that why you love the fellow so much? I didn't think I've asked you why you love the fellow so much. Is that just, you know, what was in your area when you were st- you started hunting and why did you sort of develop such a love for that particular deer species? Um, no, I, I love, I, you know, like I said, when I was a kid, there was, I, I didn't have access to fallow properties. It wasn't until I was sort of in my 18, 19 that I started to, to you know, uh, get access to, to a really nice property down Goulburn Way that, um, that had, had fallow on it. Um, and most back then, the, the, the primary colour was black black fellow and I'm a real big fan of that, those chocolate bucks. I really love that colour. <laughs> yeah? I was thinking yeah. about that myself. I was talking to a mate the other day and we were just saying, like, <laughs> what do you prefer? And I said, yeah, I do like the the big dark ones as well, but I don't know, there's something yeah. about the sandy-coloured ones, especially a yeah. good-sized male. I mean, I'll send you a photo. It's about, yeah. it's about I think I'm scoping on one hill to another, Um and this one was just on private properties. Obviously, I can't shoot it there. But I was looking at just the just the movements of them and stuff. And then I was looking through my binoculars at a kilometre. I thought, holy crap, man, that is a big boy. And he was a nice sandy-coloured one. I've been to that spot like yeah, just to see if he's going to cross over and come back here and there. But unfortunately, I just haven't been lucky and been able to get him yet. And uh, unfortunately, one of those forests I hunted was just been ravaged by fire. So I don't think I'll be going there anytime soon. Well, I've put a um, I put a photo on my uh, Instagram of a, a really nice, um, or at least he's very big bodied sort of um, black fallow buck, and he's as fat as anything. Um, uh, check it out, and because you can see you can compare him to a younger buck that's right beside him and having a feed as well, and he's a lot. He's a mental buck, and um, and he's a lot. The black fellas, um, yeah, bloody hell, he's a big boy in terms of body size. Antler wise, he's not not great. In fact, genetically, he's, he he needs to be taken out. Um, and if I see him again, I will. Um, why the yeah. why the black ones though? What what is it about them or the dark chocolatey coloured ones that you like? Oh look, I, I guess I don't want to be. Um, um, I feel like I'm being disloyal to the metal bucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just there's something really. They look kind of meaner, I suppose. But um, where I hunt, Jason. Generally, um, the black ones are sort of the, – the, the antlers are not as good as the, as the mental um, bucks. The, the mental ones are the, are the ones that produce the, the, the real big symmetrical antlers and the genetics are really good. It seems to be the black ones are, are not as genetically as, as good for some reason or another. I, don't, I actually don't know the reason for that. Um, but, yeah, well, mate, I – there's, why do I love the fallow? I think, mate, there's such a mysterious bugger. So I've heard some guys say, oh, fallow, they're like bloody goats. They're easy. Well, you know what? It, it depends. I don't think they're an easy easy deer to hunt because it depends where you're hunting them. Like you yourself, Jason, you told me you've hunted in state forests. I take my hat off to guys that hunt in state forests for, for any game species because that can be a hard slog, particularly when you've got, you know, you're competing with like the likes of doggers because the animals become nocturnal and they become very uh, flighty um, and it can be hard slog um, hunting anything in thick forest. So where I started um, hunting my fallow in, in, in Goulburn, for example, the block there was, was um, you know, 2,000 acres of thick, thick mountain forest, you know, and everywhere you'd walk, it was just crunch, 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 
you know, gum leaves, and it was bloody tough going. So it depends where you're hunting um, and where, you know, geographically are the terrain. I mean, blocks can um, change from, you know, within a kilometre. You know, one side of the fence might be easy hunting, the other side's bloody hard. So um, the other thing too is fallow fallow bucks um, have got different, you know, they'll do different things depending on the different um, time of the year. So after the rut's all over and they're, they're, when they're during the rut, they're, they're mortal enemies, they, they suddenly become great mates again. And um, so they'll all mob up into, into, into bachelor herds um, and, and, then, and then just disappear. So this is one of the great mysteries to me. It has always has been one of the great mysteries of the fallow bucks is where the hell do they go after the rut? It's just one of those things. They, they become like ghosts. Yes, you, you do find bachelor herds, but if you do find one, that's like finding a, a bloody gold nugget because, um, mate, they can be very tough to, to find sort of um, after the rut. Um, they will do, a, um, you know, like a secondary rut if um, like a, a doe comes into season again. So what happens is, is if a doe um, doesn't get serviced during the rut, she will ovulate again once every say <laughs> service. Twenty one. I like that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but is it? You know, it is a radio program. I'm trying to be a little bit. Um, you know, <laughs> anything goes here. It's all good. Anything goes. <laughs> um, well, there might be ladies listening, um, but um, and there probably is. I'm sure you have lady <laughs> listeners. Sorry, um, ladies, if you're out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, a, a, a doe will ovulate once around about every 28 days until she is serviced. So, mate, if, if she doesn't get serviced during the rut, um, she will put out a scent that, that bucks can smell. And that, that, it'll even cause it, you know, like a, a, a mini rut um, where, where bucks will start to, you know, fight again. And, in fact, I've shot, shot the biggest buck I've ever shot um, in, in August, which was just bloody unheard of for me. It's like it had a mob of does. It had... Had a dozen does with it, and it was like you've got to be kidding, you know. Great life um, being a deer, eh? <laughs> well, it isn't. It is until you get shot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it, they really are. When you think about it, and I can feel your passion because you know, yeah. like I'm passionate about it too. And I didn't think I'd be into, you know, deer hunting, so to speak. I mean, I like the fox hunting. I love the thrill of that. I love the thrill of bird shooting and duck shooting and, you know, going down to the rice and that sort of, you know, sometimes more of a high volume type situation, especially when you get good times on the rice and stuff like that. But I really appreciate it's a a different type of hunting when you get away with your mates and it's not just about the deer hunting. It's the, I don't know, I just, I I know the weather's going to get colder and, you know, sometimes I don't like the cold weather, but, you know, it's just part of deer hunting, isn't it, in some of those um, areas that we like to hunt. But, yeah, man, I feel it, I feel it. It's it's the it's the um, it's the stories that you build during your life, and as I, I as I keep saying to to guys that that hunt fallow and reds or whatever you know, um, whatever species that has a like a quote unquote season like fallow do, they have the rut. There's only so many ruts in a lifetime, so you think about it. Yeah, I you know what's the average age of a of a you know of a person? Is it sort of 75, 80? So you might only have, you know, however many ruts, and that's that's only for a short envelope of time during the year. So you bloody make the most of it. 
So if you're into into your into your deer hunting, then that's kind of I mean I just live for that that those couple of weeks every year in, in terms of I block everything out because that's the rut and uh, mate it is just such a special bloody time of year. And you asked before about what I love about fallow too. It's their it's their different antlers. Every set set of antlers is completely different to to another set, and they've got all got their own unique character. And it doesn't have to be you know, a 250 or a 280 Douglas score, but to to be a beautiful looking specimen. You know, it might be this gnarly thing that's got a cleft palm on one side and, you know, funny looking hooks on the other. It, it's just a thing of beauty and it's unique and it's unlike any other deer species. Well, I suppose the moose is a bit similar with its palmated antlers, but there's something about them, eh, that just draws me in. Mate, I was also going to mention too, you were talking about the, the rut and hunting in the rut and blacking that out on your calendar, but do you still go hunting other types of the year? Can you still get bucks, you know, and things like that? I know I have, but what's your sort of experience? Probably more hunting on the on the private land aspect side of it. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I hunt all year round, um, but in terms of um, fallow hunting, what I use the rest of the year for, yeah, I do. I do try and hunt them. Um, outside of the rut when they're still they're still got hard antler, it becomes a lot harder because, as, as I say, they become like bloody ghosts after the rut. Now, some guys will say, oh, well, I've seen plenty of bucks after the rut. Again, it depends on the terrain, where you're hunting, how much hunting pressure there is. Um, is there doggers, you know, hitting, hitting the joint up every weekend? All of those sorts of issues will factor into, you know, where you're, whether or not you're seeing bucks after the rut. Right, I'm just talking generally. Um, their their eyesight is is unbelievable. Their their sense of smell is unbelievable. And scent management. We haven't even talked about that. Um, scent management is critical. You you know, if 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 the if the the wind's up your back, forget about seeing any deer or any, or any pig or anything like that for that matter. You're just not going to see it. So that's that's just a. I mean, I, that that might be a bit basic, but that's just. That's just a standard thing. Um, what but, um, about the contentiousness of calibers? This is always a very interesting one. A lot of fighting on the internet about calibers and what to shoot, and especially from what I gathered before, quote me if I'm wrong, the way you sort of like to hunt them, scope them, and sort of get on that op- opposing hill and try and get a good shot on them and sort of get the get up on them before they realise you're there? Well, at the end of the day, it, it just – all that matters is is an ethical kill. Now, that's all that matters. If you can if you can shoot a, um, an animal with ethically and put it down with with the least amount of um, you know hurt to the animal and you're paying respect to the animal, then that's that's the caliber that you need. Um, so with that kind of overriding principle, that will sort of guide you as to what caliber. Now I think there's a bee's dick between a lot of the calibers that are out there. You know, some guys will say, you know, oh, you know, three oh eight's better than a bloody two seventy, and a and a thirty eight six is better than a three oh eight. And you know, there's all these sort of arguments. Um, I actually don't really care much for those sort of arguments um, because I primarily, I'm I class myself as a hunter. I don't I don't actually care about that. All I want to know is can that can can that caliber drop the animal. And can it do it ethically? And it can do, can it do it at the ranges that I typically shoot at? Those that's should for me that's 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 all that matters. 
Um, and what do I shoot at the moment? I'm shooting a 270 Winchester, which is I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm a bit old school. Um, it, it, 270's probably shot more deer than probably any other calibre in Australia, New Zealand. I'll put that out there. I'm, I'm happy to stand corrected on that, but um, um, it's it's a nice flat shooting calibre, and I I find that it's it's ideal. It's I've shot I've shot heaps of deer with it. I've shot heaps of pigs with it. Um, um, another good calibre for for the fallow would be a two four three. Again, it's a bit lighter, but but plenty of fallow been fallow bucks been dropped with a two four three. Um, and again, I, I don't I don't get into all of the you know the machinations of um, bullet construction and um, you know chronographing anything, mate. I just buy a packet of Federal one thirty grains, I sight <laughs> yeah, it in, yeah. and I go out there because my um, I suppose my passion is is more the the you know the the you know the aspect of um, you know getting out there and hunting and 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 just dropping it ethically and and I just I just know that 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 combination works for me and I I kind of a, of a of a mindset if it if it ain't broke don't fix it like I don't need to I don't feel the need to go out and buy a 300 win mag to to shoot fallow deer whoa no, whoa hang on no, hang no, on wait, a minute no 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 hang no, no, on no, 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 wait wait a sec wait a sec wait a sec no. but I, I mean what I'm what I'm trying to say to you I'm trying to get myself out of trouble here is I I love the 300 win mag but I've got a 270 and I've shot plenty of Plenty of deer with that, so I'm sticking to it. Like I don't, like yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not busting your balls. I just thought to myself. I just bought. I just bought a Varmint uh, 308 for some long range shooting stuff. And then, I mean, I was telling the guys the other day. I get. I don't know. Get itchy feet for some reason. And then I thought yeah. to myself the other day. Okay, I bought a wind mag. I'm running some heavy bullets. It can be a bit of a crossover for probably like a long range slash long range hunting, long range, um, you know, target shooting rig. If I get a hill I can sit on, you know, in an open area that I can see up to, you know, five, 600 metres, I can be able to use it. But I think I was, I was telling you yeah. the other day, I had a, uh, a 308 uh, a ticker, probably the same as yours. I've, you sent me yeah. some photos earlier today. Shooters uh, listening wouldn't have already seen that, but they will uh, when yeah. they see this podcast go live. But then I had someone that's like, mate, I want to, you know, I had a friend and he goes, listen, do you want to sell your 308? I said, no, nah, not really. It's, man, I've had it about five years now. It's doing a good job, mate. It's, it's dropped a lot of deer. Anyway, ah, the the price was too good to be true. So then I saw on the uh, one of the used guns websites uh, a guy pretty much. And I felt sorry for him. I kind of felt a bit bad, but he, he lost his job and he had a seven mil rem mag available. And I thought, oh shit, you know. And he hadn't he hadn't used it. He was supposed to go on a trophy hunting trip and he lost his job. He couldn't afford to keep it. I mean, the guy paid fifteen hundred bucks for this rem mag, and you know I picked it up for a thousand bucks, shipped off the poor bugger. Oh, yeah, thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. But um, you know, so now I've, and I sold the three hundred eight to a friend and. Now now I've got a bloody seven mil rem mag, so and a yeah, three hundred yeah. wind mag, so it's you know two magnum cut. Why I bought these things, I don't know. I just you know, hey, when you know, uh, like when I was in Malacuta and when uh, you know fire was there, I, I bought another two sixty CTR, and I'm like, what the hell are you doing, <laughs> man? Like spending all this money again? Well, I think um, there's an old saying: he who dies with the, with the most guns wins. Absolutely, but- I'm loving it, <laughs> loving it. Uh, but look again. If if you're shooting fellow with a 300 wind mag and it works for you, fine. That's great. Good on you. Um, for me, it, I find them a little bit on on the heavy side, like the recoil wise, um, to be shooting. But that that's just me. 
Um, well, I'm a bit of a wimp. I got mine break, so um, I won't get the REM <laughs> mag break because that's going to be in the light <laughs> version. So I'm going to use a bit of a lighter bullet, I think, in about the 160. Two, I think, which would be pretty good. So yeah. we'll just see how that works out. Hopefully, that shouldn't kick too much more than a three hundred eight. If I'm using a one sixty two, because the three hundred eight I used, uh, I think I was reloading the Sierra Hollow Point boat tail on the one sixty five, and then before that, some factory one sixty eight, the Outback ammo, which mate dropped enough deer. But then you know, I've also had deer where I've shot them at 50, 40 meters. Maybe it was probably a bit too close, and like beautiful shot right in the shoulder, just the back of the shoulder. I don't know, they've run like 30 metres, and when I've opened it up, man, literally the heart was just in, in, in you know, split in half. And I'm like, yeah, how, right. how did it run that far with a 165 at 40 metres? But maybe it was a bit too close, maybe a bit too fast. Mate, I just I saw a, a, a video today on Instagram about it was a red deer shot right in the shoulder with a 300 wind mag, and it, it ran about 40 metres. Um, I mean, it must have been dead on its feet, but yeah. Um, it, it, yeah, yeah. But just getting back to that fallow, I reckon are a tough. They're a tough bugger, even though they're only about 90, 90 kgs up to about a hundred at, at their max. They're a bloody tough little bugger, right? They, they can really take up cop some um, some lead. So whatever you do choose to shoot them with, you, yeah, you, you got to try and aim for that um, sweet spot there, and, and use a caliber that's that's going to drop them ethically. They can run a fair way with with a bit of lead in the shoulder. Absolutely, Um, man. Another quick break, and guys, we will be right back. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories, and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au. Quality gear at affordable prices. All right, mate, I want to talk about uh, especially scopes and a bit more gear what do you like to use when you're down there's just basic sort of gear or what do you like to use i like to use the best optics that you can possibly afford i think it's i think it's just as just as important as if not more than the gun that you're going to buy so i use a swarovski ballistic turret i think it's about a four to twelve by uh 50 so so i mean yeah that that was a big investment and it costs a fair bit of coin but the way I rationalise it is this: if you, if you're hunting fallow, and typically, as I said before, the prime times for, for them are the, you know, first first sort of um, rays of sunlight in the morning, and the the last sort of hour of, of before complete darkness for an evening, then you want the scope that's going to maximise um, your um, hunting time. Because it's only a short window of time, most tops during the rut. Um, although they can, they can be. In saying that, they can be going off all day. So, I guess I, I'm saying sort of probably. I withdraw that. I'll say generally speaking, you want something that's going to maximise that hunting time. So you want the best optics that you can possibly afford, and I can't sort of stress that high enough. Um, so I use that um, that that um, one with the ballistic turret. Um, Swarovski. There's um, my mate Paul. I think he uses a, a Leopold. Um, that's got the I think it's a CD, CDR or something like that. That you, you C- got the CDS dial. I think it is zero style. Yeah, yeah. And um, we use sort of 
laser range finders to um, um, you know find find the range of the of the animal. Um, we typically will will be up on top of a hill glassing, um, you know, before say in the morning, be well before daylight, and until you can actually pick up some shadows. And the deer, mate, they might be up to two k's away. Um, so then we'll use um, uh, like a I've got a, a, a digital camera with a really powerful zoom on a tripod, and I'll zoom in to try and assess the quality of the buck. See if see if it's worth putting in a stalk, um, and and then then put in that stalk um, if if needs be, or if it's in the late afternoon, we'll we'll just be sitting in the the sitting waiting in that spot that we've seen them earlier that morning, waiting for them to, to emerge from the bush. Um, what so, about the feeding techniques? I want to mention that when you like, if you see them at distance and stuff like that, um, yep. you know. How long will they feed in areas? Because sometimes I've seen them just moving through, and other times, man, like last year, I saw a group of like seventeen. I'm like, holy yeah. crap! You know, this is this is amazing, and well, they just hung around in the same area for probably within maybe a hundred meter distance, like to and from from the center point for about probably you know thirty five forty five minutes. Yeah, that can do that. What what time was that? Midwinter? Do you mind if if I ask? Yeah, it was actually. I think it was the June long weekend, yeah. possibly. But yeah. this was like probably oh, would have had to have been ten o'clock in the morning, and there was yeah, a heap. Been, there was a heap of them. I'm like, man, this is like deer mecca. Yeah, see, got to hunt here more. <laughs> see, the reason reason I I asked you was that in midwinter is because they will stay out longer in midwinter when the sun's a little bit lower in the sky that's not as intense as summer. And and the other factor to that is that it will have been really cold overnight and they'll be trying to fill their bellies as quickly as possible because, like I said, they, they will lose um, – their body burns energy just to try and stay warm overnight. So the first thing that they're as hungry as buggery and if just knowing that, then you can sort of target those those areas where that there's some there might be a bit of good green pick, just immediately adjacent to some sort of some pines or some some thicker forest. But they do love the pines, um, and and you can just sit there and wait, and and without trying to set the area up, and just get get into an area where you can sort of get out your binocs and you're up maybe a bit higher that you can just sit there. And just wait. Have you like like you say? You use a camping chair. I use a little um, tiny little chair as well. Um, yeah, it works really well, doesn't it? Just to mate, pull off your a, pack and have a sit yeah. down occasionally. You're not sitting on wet ground sometimes <laughs> if you're up against a tree or similar. Yeah, that's right. And maybe even take a little thermos with you if you can fit it in your pack. And and you know a few few little um, some Mars bars and some nuts, something to nibble on. But it's mate. It's I just love seeing. All the other shit that comes out of the bush that time of the morning or that time in the I was evening. Thinking the same thing as you, I've learnt so much on watching. I remember last year, uh, I think it was maybe the October long weekend. Uh, I yeah. saw a fox. It popped out. Uh, ended up shooting it. it. Was in a nice little open area. So it was up a little bit higher, which was great. Anyway, the next day, I thought I'll come back that afternoon because it gives me about two hundred meter, three hundred meter, maybe four hundred meter probably distance to be able to shoot if something pops out. Then all of a sudden, and a fox came through this area, like almost in the same position, and I'm like, 
why is he coming down there? But then I realized it was a little, the way the land was is that's where the water comes down. So it was probably trying to get some frogs, maybe some lizards and stuff like that. And this is the first time I've ever seen this happen. Two crazy things happen. This fox made its way down to the other fox and literally stood on top of the fox, the dead one, sniffing it. And I was like, man, should I? I'm thinking I might shoot this thing because this is going to be probably never going to realize this moment again of shooting a, a fox on top of a dead <laughs> fox, right? Anyway, so it, it veered to the le- uh, to my left, and I thought, no, nah, I'll just wait. Anyway, it, it ended up going behind this uh, a, a tree that was down, so it was dead. It had no foliage on it, and it went to sleep, and I could see the top of its head, and I thought, well, if I go to get up in the in the, in the the morning, yeah, by 10 o'clock, as I was heading home that day, I might shoot it. Anyway, a couple of hours go past. I'm about to get up. It's still sleeping there. All right, I'm going to have a shot at it. It's only 100 meters, but it's a fairly – decent decline i had a shot at it and i missed and i saw it hit the like the grass next to it and i thought oh no i've missed anyway it just looked up and i'm thinking man i'm 100 meters there's no i I think the fox was deaf because i thought there's no way on earth it didn't hear this i had a second shot i don't know if it was my (laughs) yesterday i hit the exact one at the same distance i don't know what happened i was on my bag on the ground so i was prone like what else could go wrong i missed it again and then it jumped up and then it's still looking around and i'm thinking why is this thing here and then, it, and, then it, and then it finally took a bolt over to the middle of the, the you know, the, the grassed area, sort of running away, about 150, 160. And, you know, third time lucky, I missed again. So, and I was like, man, all this craziness happened all in one situation. But I'm like, why is a fox standing on a dead fox? Like, it's, what's happening here? But you, you're right. You see all these things come out, all these animals. Um, yeah, I'm just, it's amazing what you see in a three hour span and, and what crosses your path. If you were normally just making your way through the area, you wouldn't get to witness that. Exactly right, mate. And another thing that just occurred to me, it's really important point with, with fallow or any other animal for that matter in Australia, not so much where you won't have this problem in New Zealand, but in Australia, the, the bloody alarm signals of the bush, the bloody kangaroos, mate. They will give you up every single time Absolutely. if you're tromping through, which is the advantage. This, this is why, you know, the sit and wait technique is, is a really good one because you can get there, you know, you can tromp to your spot if you've got a GPS or whatever on, on your phone or you've got a GPS, mark the spot where you want to go or even suss it, suss it out beforehand and get there during dark, during dark, you know, get up at, you know, get up at bloody 4 a.m. if you need to to get to your spot before sunrise and because you can get there before the you get uh, ruse you know spooking through because as i said before those ruse are going to be feeding in the prime spots where the deer are going to come out where the ruse are that's just, that's generally where the where the deer will come out as well because they're they're after that prime feed they want that prime tucker as much as the as the bloody deer do so if you can get to those prime spots beforehand or even if in the afternoon if you're setting up an ambush instead of you know, going out at, say, sort of 5 o'clock, maybe think about, you know, going out at sort of 2.30, 3pm setting up and setting up your, your, your sort of your spot. So then you've got a chance for the, for the deer to come out. So what, what, what the fallow will do, they'll be, they'll be back in the scrub looking at, at the roos that are out, out in the open feeding and they'll know. They'll go, right, okay, well, the the coast is clear for us to come out because those guys are already out there, um, and and that gives them a sense of comfort. So it can work in your favour. You can use the ruse to your bloody favour, as funny as that sounds. 
What about, you know, because you spend a lot of time on private property. Let's go both situations. I guess you can't do herd distribution. How does that work with, you know, fallow deer and how to get quality heads? Obviously, that would be a bit harder on, uh, you know, public land and trying to manage that because I guess, you know, if sometimes you think if something crosses your path, you know, and you're in a forest that gets used a lot, you may not come across that deer or if you do... Uh, chances it's probably going to be shot by somebody else. So how does the, the, the herd distribution work with fallow? Um, well, they are creatures of habit. And it's, I've read studies where, the, um, where, where does will just generally hang around within a, say, around about a 5K radius of where they were born. Now, I, I, I can't attest to the truth or otherwise of that. That's just something I've read. But I suspect that there's, there's an element of truth. Um, bucks, on the other hand, I think tend to travel. Um, how far exactly do they travel? I don't know. I still don't know to this day how far the bucks travel or, or where they go exactly. This is this is one of life's great mysteries to me. Where these bloody fellow bucks um, piss off to after the rut because they mate they become like freaking ghosts. But in terms of herd distribution, when I first started hunting fallow back in the sort of the late 80s, early 90s, there was some, you know, there was some known herds, right, of fallow. This is where you, you, if, you if you wanted to hunt fallow, you, you either went to Tasmania or you went to, um, you went to sort of um, the Goulburn area where that, that started off back in the 1800s from the release of um, fallow from a property called Currandooley Station. Um, and they've spread up and down that sort of whole Braidwood Lake George, Goulburn kind of area. They're all through there. Um, and there was um, there's another herd up around, uh, you know, the Willow Tree herd, and there was another one up around Glen Innes. Again, I'm talking mainly sort of the eastern seaboard. There's probably, um, there's probably quite a few up um, in Queensland and, indeed, South Australia now with um, around that water valley and the um, sort of, I think it's the southeastern part of South Australia. I've not been there, but I've been told a lot of stories about the, you know, the fallow and the reds. Um, you know, Merton Outdoors, um, he's he's a big, big fallow hunter down there. So have a look at his side if you if you want to look at some cracking fallow and reds. Um, Craig Merton. It's amazing um, too how the I mean, obviously, I've not had much experience with uh, with uh, red deer hunting, but how they've moved too, and how Samba have come up. I remember couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, um, saw, I'm pretty sure they were together, they were only, they were only two deer, they, they popped out of this game trail and a Samba and a Fallow were together. Now, I took both of those deer, but I was kind of surprised that those two types of deer were actually hanging out together. I didn't know that was a thing. I know I've seen deer next to cows, next to roos and things like that within, say, five or ten metres, but hanging out together as a, as a different species, maybe it's normal. I've just never seen that, and I'm surprised I saw that. Is that something you've seen before? It's, it's not something I've seen, but I've, I've, I've actually – it's funny you should say that because I've got a um, – a mate that that only hunts pigs. He's a he's a dogger, and that's all he does. Um, but he was telling me in the area that um, I hunt because he he hunts there as well. That he saw a big samba stag with a with a fallow doe, and I was just and he knows his deer. He's 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 no he's no slouch. He's not making things up, or he hasn't he hasn't misplaced the species. He was adamant that he saw a samba stag with with a fallow doe, which. Yeah, I just think that's quite quite incredible. 
Yeah. Um, I have my doubts they're able to breed and produce um, offspring. I don't think they're, they're two species that could do that. Um, Samba and, and Rusa, yes, they can. Um, Reds and Seeker can interbreed, but I don't, I'd be very surprised, put it that way, if um, a, a Samba um, could breed with a, with a fallow because they're just, um, the Samba are an Asiatic species, whereas a fallow are European. Not that necessarily means anything, but I just have my doubts. I'm happy to stand corrected on that. Yeah, I know. When I saw it, I thought, I originally thought the Samba was a dark chocolate fallow, and then mm. it was only that the other sandy-coloured fallow, it had mangled <laughs> antlers, but it was a good size. It was a good size. And, uh, yeah, it just uh, came out. And That's they were, incredible. They were together, but they were probably about four and a half metres apart, and they came out of, the, out of a game <laughs> trail, and I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. <laughs> well, what... Again, what they will do is they will emerge with the ruse. Um, they're, they're completely comfortable with the ruse, and I, I think that that's their insurance policy. They know that if 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 the ruse start to to bugger off back into the into the bush, um, then um, you know they'll they'll they will follow. There'll be no there'll be no sort of standing around waiting to see what it was. That they will just literally fuck off back into the bush. Um, one thing I have noticed is um, roos often don't like um, big fallow bucks. So if if, if you if you're glassing off into the distance and roos are just starting to hoik it um, at a at a really good pace, then then um, well a it could be a, a human being, another hunter's down there, or or B, um, there's a fallow buck for some reason, I don't know why, maybe they give them a bit of a touch-up or something. They just don't seem to like um, big fallow bucks. So that can be another clue for you. What about if we want to <coughs> preserve, you know, fallow hunting opportunities? So, like, we want to, you know, preserve genetics, would you say? Would we, I mean, this might be obvious to the more experienced guys out there, but let's go both, I guess. Would we, are we shooting more of the yeah, average bucks that don't have really good genetics? Are we shooting more does? What are we shooting? Well, I, I like to, to kind of encourage people to shoot more does because um, uh, I think there's been some studies that show that where the, there's a, you know, a reasonably even distribution of bucks to to um, does, then the then the you're going to produce decent heads. But otherwise, if if there's hardly any any um, um, bucks to to doe ratio, then then often the, the one buck that's around um, there's not a great choice for the does. So they've only got and, and and it is what it is. If it's a great buck, then that's good. But but often it, it won't be. It'll just be just an average or a shitty. Or, or a young young thing, and um, it's not gonna it's not gonna be great for the overall management of the herd. Um, I know there's been a lot of discussion about that, and yeah, you know, it's very hard in Australia when you've got you know bloody helicopter gunships going in and slaughtering deer on mass like they do up around sort of the New England area and stuff. Um, it's very disheartening actually, but but at the end of the day, they're they're survivors, and um, no matter how many they they, they kind of slaughter. Um, I've got a sense that they're always going to survive. They're just going to hide in their little pockets and and breed up again, which is um, not. I guess it's not great for the for the farmer. But if we can keep the numbers down to a, you know, to a to a a, a size where they're 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 a resource and not a pest, I think that's the key. Because where I hunt, um, the, the 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 guy that owns the property actually likes likes seeing the deer, but as, he doesn't like seeing too many. But he but he do, does like seeing them around. 
Um, so if we can keep him happy by, you know, shooting a few days as well and just keeping the numbers down if we can, um, then I think that's that's kind of good for the future. And, um, you know, and personally, I, if, I, if I can, I, I'd like to shoot um, something that's a bit sort of, you know, genetically inferior in terms of, of head. But um, that's just me. All right, man, to finish off, like let's have a chat about, I guess, a story. My uh, listeners always love a good story, so share one with us that uh, the people can uh, listen to and they always love the story. So, Oh, well, this, this um, story was, was a cracker. This, this was only a couple of years ago and I was hunting my, with my, my hunting body buddy, um, Paul Elder, Grizzly Hunting on Instagram, give him a follow. And, um, you know, I really pumped up. Um, we d- put in a lot of um, trips to the property beforehand over, over the months just to scope out where we thought the bucks were going to be and um, sussing out their scrapes, you know, looking at the trail cams and sort of forming a, put, a mental picture as well as a physical picture because I, I actually printed out um, big colour. I mean, I know it's a bit over the top, but I actually printed out some big colour Google Earth maps of the, of the property and and you know, put some X's down as to where the where where the scrapes were and where I'd glassed uh, bachelor mobs and all this sort of stuff. And and um, anyway, we were I think it was evening three of the rut, and we'd we'd um, was getting sort of late lateish in towards the evening. We'd positioned ourselves on this sort of knoll, um, this the crest of this kind of little outcrop uh, that was adjacent to some forest, and we knew that. Um, there was plenty of does in that that kind of spot, and there were some good scrapes, good active scrapes in the area. Um, and we'd heard some croaking sort of um, earlier in um, in the in the day, but we didn't want to sort of set up that area. We just thought we'd leave it for for an afternoon hunt. So we we positioned ourselves on this on this knoll, and um, it, mate, it was getting late. It was getting towards. Just at that time, we we are starting to think far out. You know, we just wasted an afternoon. There's, you know, there's a few ruse. There's the occasional sort of, um, I think, doe had walked out, sort of grazing, and and I'm just starting to think, oh, look, why don't we just sort of, you know, pack up and and get back to camp? Because it'd been a big big day, mate. We put in some massive days, like getting up at frigging, you know, four a.m. <laughs> and and packing it out, and you know. I was absolutely rooted, and I, I was sort of I was sort of motioning to Paul, you know, should we pack up? He's going, no, mate, just just wait another five minutes. And I'm like, far out. There's hardly any light to left. How 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 much better is this going to get? You know, I, I had my doubts, and within a within a minute or two of of me sort of saying that, I I thought I heard something that sort of off off up into the in the forest. We're out and sort of like a, on this knoll sort of on the edge of the scrub. And I thought, far out, that sounds sounds like a bloody antlers clashing. And, and I, I said to Paul, do you hear that? And he goes, yeah. And it's sort of all of a sudden my my kind of adrenaline went from zero to, to friggin' 100, you know. What what the hell was that? Where's it going to come out? <laughs> yeah. And, and within, I reckon within the last sort of two minutes of usable light, this friggin' monster buck just emerged from from about 300 metres away um, down in the valley, just from the scrub line where we'd heard the, near where we'd heard that, that distant sound of antlers, and he'd emerged 
and there's like this bloody, I don't know, this, I don't know, I can't describe the feeling, but we knew straight away that that is a shooter. That is a fucking shooter. Uh, got out the binox and, yeah, it's like, holy shit, I was just shaking, you know, when I saw this thing. <laughs> don't you hate that when you, your heart rate's going yeah. and you're like, oh, my oh, God, it's a great feeling, but it's also a yeah. scary feeling. So, so anyway, it was kind of what we do with Paul and I, we, we take it in turns to shoot a buck. Like, I'll shoot, shoot one, then he'll shoot one. So it was my turn, right? Um, and so Paul quickly um, ranged him for me and I lay in, lay prone. I had my bipod ready um, and he ranged it at 300 metres and I dialed the scope in and I, and I, you know, closed the bolt and I looked at this thing and I was like, holy shit, you know, and, and um, took a deep breath, let a little bit out, squeezed the trigger, fired and just you, you just heard the bullet hit, hit it and it just made it just dropped. And I looked at Paul and went, holy fuck, I got this thing. And, you know, it was <laughs> like, wow. And then we went up to it. It was like, oh, my God, this thing, it was the biggest fellow I'd ever shot in sort of, you know, 40 years of hunting. And it was sort of like, it was an emotional moment. It was really emotional. And to share that with, with Paul, is it, mate, it was a team effort, number one. That was a team effort. And I will forever classify that one and another one, another monster that I got as a team effort. And that's why I say I reckon it's it's really cool to have a, a hunting buddy, someone that's a, you know, that you, you rate as a as a as a, a, a great hunter, and he is a great hunter. He's t- taught me so many things about um, you know, his his hunting style. And I've probably taught taught him a few things too. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, but just the camaraderie of that moment and um um, just the culmination of, of all of that planning and the, you know, the um, scoping out the area, the um, it, it all just it all just came together at that moment. And sure, there was a bit of luck in it, but you know what? You make your own luck in hunting generally, and that was that was just the cream. That was just fantastic. I'll never forget that buck. Man, it's always about those experiences, isn't it? That. Uh... You know, keeps us coming back for more to always get that one again. And I shot a real. Yeah. I think I'd love to. Actually, did you keep the head or anything? Did you keep the antlers oh, or yeah. anything like? That? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's on my Instagram. Yeah, Have a check it Ta- out. T- tag me in that one because I'd love to one day if you've still got it to, uh, you know, compare one that I got on public land to to what you got to see how much different they are and is your, how much bigger yours would be. Because um, I was pretty happy with this buck. I'll. I'll, uh, I'll I'll post up the photo again tonight on Instagram after we finish right. the show, and uh, that'll be you can have a look at it and see what you think. But it was sort of a dark chocolate one. But guys, we're just going to quick break again, final break, and we'll be right back to finish off. The Australian Hunting Podcast is the only hunting, shooting, and fishing podcast radio show in Australia. With over forty thousand downloads per month, you are sure to find some information that can help you. If you love hunting, shooting, fishing and a little bit of politics, the Australian Hunting Podcast has you covered. To listen, check us out on iTunes and visit australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. All right, mate, to finish off, anything else you wanted to add? Any final words to the to the listeners about getting out there wanting to hunt fallow? I just say get out there and have some fun and... You know, even if it's not the biggest buck in the world, you know, get it out of your system, shoot one. But next time you shoot one, shoot a bigger one, you know, or, or shoot a doe. Leave those, those smaller ones to grow 
um, and and grow out out into a into a bigger head because they're they're our future. And um, but above all else, have some fun and enjoy the moment. And because they're memories that'll last you for a lifetime. Absolutely, mate. Uh, fellow fanatic. Craig Chapman joins me here on AHP to have a chat about fallow hunting, mate. It was awesome. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Jason. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.